you need to have parts of your personality that are separate from your job, no matter how wonderful your job is. And if you are able to kind of, and if you are able to kind of personality from extricate your own personality from what it is you do, then you can have that balance a little bit more easily than like, like I would say, you know, my workaholic parents who like absolutely instill the work ethic in, in me. And I'm so grateful for that, but my approach to work and their approach to work is very different. You're listening to Chief Executive Ante, the podcast exploring the work lives of Asian Americans beyond the conventional doctor, lawyer, and engineer. I'm your host, Jennifer Duan Faltz. The only Asian American journalist I knew growing up was Connie Chung, and I was like, well, I don't want to be on TV, so I guess I can't do that. And I wish I had known about some other options within the journalism field because I think I would have done really well there. My guest today is Stephanie Wu, Articles Director at Condé Nast Traveler. She is also the author of The Roommates, True Tales of Friendship, Rivalry, Romance, and Disturbingly Close Quarters and co-founder of Mochi Magazine, which is how I originally met her. Actually, she's one of the few guests that I've met in person, though we are, of course, recording this episode remotely. Stephanie grew up in Taipei and graduated from NYU before holding a variety of editorial positions in the food and travel verticals. Welcome to the show, Steph. Thanks, Jen. So I'm very curious to know what a typical day looks like for you now, both during COVID, but then also what was it like pre-COVID in journalism? Yeah, so um, I guess let me start by telling you a little bit about what I do and then how we've had to adjust totally for this like topsy-turvy world we're living in right now. Um, So I'm the articles director at Condé Nast Traveler, which essentially means that I'm running the website along with a colleague who handles all of our city guides. I handle all of our articles and that encompasses any travel news, any um, shopping stories, any destination features, um, any kind of like inspirational stories that like of beautiful photos that you love to look at. Um, So I, along with my brilliant team, essentially makes sure that we have plenty of new stories every day, that we have tons of travel content, both for when you are looking for places to go and for when you're stuck at home and need a little like mental escape. Um, And also just like, you know, keeping an eye on all other parts of our digital operation, whether that's newsletter or social or um, e-commerce opportunities and things like that. So it's really... um, kind of runs a gamut of what our digital expression is, I would say. Um, And I would say on a typical day, I spend 30% of my time doing actual editing, (laughs) 30% of my time in meetings. If I'm lucky in March, Um, things changed a lot as, you know, the, um, the government started to really take the COVID-19 outbreak really seriously. And we realized that we needed to be responsible about how we talked about travel and whether we were encouraging readers to travel, which of course, quickly, we understood that we were mm-hmm. not and we shouldn't be. And we needed to, to be promoting this idea of staying at home so that we could theoretically get out of this pandemic sooner rather than later which five months later, (laughs) can't say we've done a great job of that. (laughs) And of course, in March, like none of us thought, oh, we're going to be, you know, writing about this new world for months and months and months. Although we certainly did know that 
things are not going back to normal anytime soon. And even when we are traveling again, Mm -hmm. the way we travel will be totally different. Like I've never edited so many stories about safety and like immunology and like interviewing like epidemiologists. And so like all of these are now kind of the new travel normal and what people are thinking about in doing the very limited travel they can. So for the past few months, we've been very focused on obviously like local travel. So like a hike near you or like maybe, you know, a day trip to see family. Um, We've been thinking about road trips. We've been thinking about travel bubbles and how to like safely include people in your travel bubble, how to see relatives that you haven't seen in a long time. Um, And that's all just become part of this new consideration for what travel means for us in the near future and how to do it responsibly and how to figure out your comfort level, which of course is deeply personal. Yeah, I was listening to another podcast and one of the hosts was talking about just driving to see family and they were like, I didn't pee the entire time. I was like, oh my gosh, like rest stops. I never didn't even think about that. I'm going to buy an RV. It's going to be my plan. (laughs) In RVs and road trips. And we're doing like beginning guides to like camping and hiking for people who never thought that like, oh, outdoors is where I'm going to be spending most of my time this summer. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, when you said five months, I was like, oh, it has been. And like months. the print part of what we do, I mean, the magazine part is, of course, like we're thinking about 2021 uh-huh. already. And so it is a little bit of a, right. a mind like meld to have to think about the daily news of August 2020 and then also try and predict what will we be talking about in January 2021. Yeah. What is the lead time for print? So we are, so just like as an example, it's August right now and we're finishing the October issue in like, you know, working on the November issue and then planning ahead for December. Wow. And so you're always working on multiple issues at the same time too. (laughs) Um, I get Oprah magazine and I remember like March, April, May, like nothing, nothing about pandemic. And I was like, I mean, I know that paper, that print production does run that far ahead, but I was like, surely Oprah Winfrey can like stop the presses. Right. But it, it was just, it was so interesting to see. And then I think in like June and July, I was like, okay, now we're doing this thing. I was like, well, yeah, I can, I can, I can understand that. <laughs> if anyone can stop the presses, it's Oprah. And I don't I know if you saw so. the September issue, but it's super powerful. It's got Brianna Taylor on the cover and oh. it's clear that they really like stopped and thought about how to make an impact when they were producing new magazines completely at home again, because, you know, I think any editor would like to tell you that they're very tactile and visual and you want to see a photo and you want to look at a proof physically um, before you're, you sign off on anything. And now all of that is done over zoom meetings and screen shares. And it's, you know, for a creative person, I think that has immense struggles, not to mention the actual physical part of like, you don't quite know if your text is big enough or if things are legible if you don't print it out and look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say how has, I'm sure your workflow has changed completely um, between in-person and digital. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah. I mean, I think that we had been kind of moving toward what we were calling a paperless system 
even when we were back in the office, just to be sustainably minded and think about how can we cut down on all these like sheets of paper, like physically circulating around an office. So luckily that system was in the works, but of course we had to speed it up when we realized we would all be staying at home. And I think some people like honestly like bought little personal printers. Um, <laughs> I think we've adapted shockingly well and we've put out two magazines since then. So, I mean, I know we have, but it's just a completely different way of working. Plus I think it's more about the mental toll and all of us, you know, no matter where you're working, really like being patient, not just with yourself, but being, being patient with your coworkers and understanding that we now have roommates with four legs, roommates who cry, you know, coworkers who are very needy during the day that you like can't, you know, tell to go away while you're in the middle of an important Zoom. And so to me, it's the bigger change has been this, this like a feeling of accommodation and flexibility and being aware that everybody's circumstances are totally different and you have no idea what's going on like on the outside of my zoom screen yeah um when i was getting ready to do my first recording of the week um i like i turned on my mic and was like going through things on zoom and i hear just like screaming and banging and uh, from downstairs and I had to be go tell my co-workers <laughs> can you go outside <laughs> like, this is the one time audio quality actually matters can you please take it somewhere else <laughs> exactly and they never seem to want to be quiet when you need them to be quiet <laughs> no. no I mean I have worked from home for pretty much all of my freelance career but I I tell people I have more co-workers now than I'm used to and I can't get rid of them <laughs> Exactly. And like the closed door is sometimes honored, but not always. Um, and you are based in New York, right? Yes, I'm in New York. Okay. How is everything? <laughs> it's been, it's been weird. I mean, you, you're definitely starting to see signs of life coming back. You know, I think there were several months in which you would walk outside and it would feel a little bit like a ghost town. And I live in Manhattan, so there's never a time you know, pre-COVID when Manhattan was quiet or the streets were empty. Um, so I think in the last few months, as we've gotten to phase three and phase four, you're starting to see people outside more, but still certainly in masks, still trying to stay six feet away from each other. Um, so it's been fine, but I have to say that I probably spend like 90% of my week indoors and we really are still going outside very infrequently and only to essentially buy groceries or go to the pharmacy or do what we consider like really essential things. I finally did a dentist appointment after months and months and it just was like, it doesn't feel anywhere near normal yet. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely grateful for the ability to go for a walk because, you know, I'm, I'm in a much smaller town, so there's, it's much less crowded. And just if everybody, I'm sure if everybody in New York went for a walk, it would be a problem. And our, let me tell you, our sidewalks are not six feet wide. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, so I'm sure you didn't expect this when you started your career in journalism, but I'd love to hear about kind of your origin story um, when you decided to specialize in food and travel. Yeah, so I kind of, I guess, like, just to like go way back, I definitely grew up like a print media nerd. So I loved books, I devoured books, I devoured 
you know, notably the Babysitter's Club, which of course is cool again, now that the incredible Netflix show has like opened it up to a new generation. Um, and I devoured print magazines. I loved them. They um, were my connection to the outside world. I grew up in Taiwan. Um, so I used magazines as like a link to American pop culture. Mm. Um, it was incredibly like, it was a form of escapism, but also just kind of like joy to like disappear for a few hours into a YM or a teen people and read about like other people's problems. <laughs> um, and that love translated to me eventually working on the school paper in high school and then deciding to study journalism. And I knew I wanted to study in a big city just because I had lived in a big city growing up and knew that I needed kind of to be in a place where ideally there were media publications. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up attending um, NYU and I studied journalism there. Throughout my time at NYU, I was interning at magazines all the time. And that was certainly the benefit of going to school in New York was the ability to kind of work during the school year. So I drank that all up and was able to kind of meet magazine editors and solidify that this was really my interest and knew that it was kind of the area that I wanted to go into, even though back in those days already you were seeing like a strong, strong decline of the print industry and advertising disappearing and magazines like Gourmet or like Cosmo Girl folding. Um, and you could really like the writing was on the wall. Writing had always been on the wall. So I entered the industry certainly aware that it was no longer the golden age of magazines, of print media, of advertising. Um, and I would say that my career has sort of been about adjusting to that, like adjusting mm -hmm. to this, what was a glamorous idea of magazine journalism as seen in movies like Devil Wears Prada or 13 Going on 30 and realizing like what the realities of the industry actually are. Um, I always like, you know, as a food and travel editor, I often get like, oh, you have a dream job. Like I want to travel the world and eat food and like everybody <laughs> does. But I think it's clear to me and I think to most people who work in what you would consider a dream job that, you know, there is no such thing as a dream job. First of right. all, like work is work, work is labor. It's something you do to pay the bills. And if you enjoy what you do and if you enjoy who you work with, that's a huge part of it. But it shouldn't take over your life. And so I think people are always a little disappointed when I say, oh, yes, I'm a food and travel editor, but I spend all of my time behind a screen typing just like you do. <laughs> and when I do travel, of course, it's wonderful because I am aware of the newest places and the cool restaurants and all of that. And I can really plan a great itinerary. But I would say that the majority of my job is certainly like, butt in seat, hands on keyboard, reading lots and lots and lots of text. <laughs> I was just looking up, um, you know, that stupid quote of like, if you find a job you like, you'll never work a day in your life. And someone had attributed it to Confucius. I'm like, I can guarantee you no Asian ever said anything. <laughs> I don't care who actually said it, but I guarantee you they were not Asian. Um, yeah, I, I think that's one of the most like, 
honestly damaging myths that were told that like, oh, if your job is fun, it won't feel like work. No, it's still going to be work. It's just going to be fulfilling and worth it, but it's still going to be work. And there's still going to be things that you don't love about it. Um, I think that was something I had to learn (laughs) was to not like run away from jobs just because because I was looking, I feel like I was looking for like that perfect unicorn job and I would run away as soon as something happened that I didn't like. And then I was like, oh, okay, there is no such thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think our generation really has come to understand that unfortunately, like job loyalty is not, is nowhere near as much of a thing as it was in our parents' generation as it is for our generation. You know, you can give your heart and soul to a company and consider it, frankly, part of your identity, but there will be layoffs and there will be, you know, like economic depressions, which I think I'm in my second one, you know, (laughs) and unfortunately, like that loyalty doesn't always go both ways. And I think it, it also took me a long time to realize that like, you need to have parts of your personality that are separate from your job, no matter how wonderful your job is. Um, And if you are able to kind of extricate your own personality from what it is you do, then you can have that balance a little bit more easily than like, like I would say, you know, my workaholic parents who like absolutely instill the work ethic in, in me. And I'm so grateful for that. But my approach to work and their approach to work is very different. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, ironically, when I so when I was a teacher, I don't think I had that balance at all. Like, because that was like my work was my whole identity. And ironically, it was my mom who was like, "Why don't you just treat it like a job?" <laughs> um, and for I mean, education, I think is is different because you invest so much in other people that you it's if, if you're there just because it's a job, you shouldn't be there. But, um, but she kind of had a point. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think like what I would consider essentially like the caring industry. So like teachers, nurses, doctors, like you have to kind of care very, very deeply about what you do or you wouldn't put yourself through that. But at the same time, it does just make it even harder to step away because there's always that like, oh, it's for a good cause. I'm doing it for kids. I'm doing it for sick people. I you mean, know? that's a very timely conversation for right now. Um, I mean, the reason I stepped away from teaching was when, was, was when I became a parent and I was like, I don't think I can be the kind of parent and the kind of teacher that I want to be at the same time. And that was really sad. Um, and I think it's taken me, it has taken me a while to figure out that like work is not who I am. Um, it's part of it. Um, I mean, that can be go for anything. Like a relationship is not the definition of who I am. My job is not the definition of who I am. It's, it's all part of it in there, but it's not one thing defining all of it. Yeah. And I think like, that's also the reason why I'm a really big proponent of essentially the side hustle, which I know you are too, Jen. Um, But it like brings me to what we have in common, which is Mochi Magazine. And I started it back in 2008 with Maggie as a way to kind of do all the fun things I didn't get to do at work. You know, if I was an assistant, like transcribing stories and getting coffee and doing all of that, Mochi was my outlet to like reach out to celebrities directly and do interviews and edit other people and design a website. And so I really had to kind of actively carve out a way to do the things that I was so excited to do, but wasn't quite ready for professionally yet. And I think no matter what your side hustle is, whether you 
you know, volunteer or whether you're in some kind of tangentially professionally related affinity group or something like you have to have that other thing that helps you stop your work at some point and put yourself first. Because I think, you know, I'm not a parent, but I think most parents would say before you know it, your life is not your own (laughs) and you've got (laughs) another thing that you have to worry about. And it's a little bit like you only have so much time, I think, to put yourself first. And that's the thing I wish I had you know, known even more of when I was younger. Yeah. You can still do it. You can still put yourself first when you're a parent. You have to do a lot more juggling. I wake up earlier than I used to. <laughs> um, and also like having a little clock in my kid's room that tells him when he can get out of bed is <laughs> really helpful. And honestly, um, if your side thing is sleeping more, great. Yeah. <laughs> All <for> right. That. <laughs> right. And the other thing, um, I've met a couple, I'm actually more than a few creatives who like their side hustle is their, well, like their side hustle is their priority and they work to feed the side hustle. And I'm like, I like that balance. I don't mind that balance. Cause I think, you know, we're taught like, okay, we got to work and then we can have fun. Right. Or you need a quote unquote real job. job. (laughs) Yeah. But then I've met people who are like, no, I'm gonna have fun and I will work so that I can have fun. I was like, I love that. That's very liberating. <laughs> right. And for some people that means like eating like that fun part is like eating all at all the best restaurants and then, you know, writing Yelp detailed Yelp reviews and becoming Yelp elite. And like, I love that. I think that's probably for, for many much more creative, creatively fulfilling than if they were to do my job and make it a full-time thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, like when I, had like a little tiny photography thing (laughs) at one point. Um, And when I tried to make it a business, it wasn't fun anymore. Um, And, and and again, since then I've kind of learned like, okay, sometimes you just have to do the work so you can have the money to do the fun things. That's fine. Um, But yeah, not every hustle has to be for money has to be for an audience. It can really, it should be for fun first and then, the other things second. And when it's not fun, I think that's when you think about, okay, what's changed in my life? I'm not the same person I was when I was 22 or when I was 25. And you really kind of have these hard conversations with yourself. And that's kind of exactly where I was. I think it was two years ago when I decided, okay, it's time for me to, you know, take a step back from Mochi and really hand the reins over to somebody else. And that's how I met you, Jen. But it was two years. Oh, man, (laughs) two years, if not more, I guess I I had a really hard time, like stepping away from a thing I'd spent 10 years working on. And I think that's growing up is realizing when a side project has taken on a life of its own, and needs, you know, more than you can give it, or knowing when to shut something down, or knowing simply like when you need to pivot and put something aside and not beat yourself up or feel guilty about like letting a thing lapse. Graceful goodbyes to certain periods of your life is a very important adulting skill that I have not mastered yet. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm better at it now just because I don't have as much time as I used to, but I will still like, oh, but I could still do like a little tiny bit. Just end it gracefully and move on to other things. (laughs) And frankly, I think the pandemic is literally a great time to do exactly that, to reprioritize, think about 
what do I actually, you know, care about? And like, frankly, like this has been a time where we've all had to say graceful goodbyes to long nights of drinking and partying. And like, I don't miss it at all, but I certainly know that many, many other people like would kill to go to a bar and be like shoulder to shoulder with other people right now. And don't do it. <laughs> definitely don't do it now. But I think that it's that now is the time to really kind of think about what's been important. What are you missing? Like what part of human contact do you, can you really not live without versus like time for introspection essentially? Yeah. Um, I'm curious, did you, who were your role models? Because I didn't know journalism was an option. I literally did not know like that was a thing that people could do. And I was, I was, I was like you, I was a kid who read Mac, I read National Geographic cover to cover when I was like in third grade and I would design like stupid newsletters on the computer. Like I was literally doing that. I was literally making magazines as a kid, but I didn't know that that was a thing that I could do as an adult. Um, who, like, who were your role models in that? Yeah, I think it helped that I, I like, frankly, will say I don't think I had any role models, which, you know, is obviously a problem in and of itself that there wasn't really any specifically like Asian American figures in media that I could really mm -hmm. look up to. Certainly, mm -hmm. like, I idolized the magazine editors that I, where I was like following along with their journeys, but like, could I actually, like, as a kid, could I have seen myself doing that? probably not. And I think like, frankly, a lot of this to me goes to the imposter syndrome that a lot of us feel of, you know, you have a very scripted childhood. You go from class to class, you go from grade to grade, you have a path, you get into college, you find a thing to study, and then you find a job you like. And I was very happy to have that kind of structure but certainly it was always oriented as like, okay, what is the job I'm going to have at the end of that? And it was very professionally focused, probably more than it should have been for me to like fully enjoy my childhood. Um, but where my imposter syndrome really came in was I never like saw myself as a creative person. I was, I was good at English, but I was also good at math, you know? So it, there was not that like dream that I think many, many people have of, I want to be a writer. Like my words are great and they need to be out there. And I would like go as far as to say that like, I wouldn't call, have called myself a writer until I started working. Like that's mm. how much I felt like I was more journalist first or storyteller first or editor first, as opposed to writer first. And that kind of helped me essentially create my own path as opposed to like thinking in terms of, oh, my goal is to write a book one day. It was really like, my goal is to like understand the magazine industry and every single facet of it um, and like become the best magazine editor I can um, and really like frame it as a mini steps I could take toward a goal as opposed to a loftier thing that felt like harder to wrap my head around. Yeah. But spoiler alert, you did write a book. <laughs> I did write a book. But again, like it was not, it was a thing that came through my magazine experience. It was because um, my editors knew that I was great at finding sources and interviewing people and getting the story out of a tough subject, as opposed to somebody saying like, oh, you, you know, the way you string words together are beautiful. Like we need a book <laughs> of this. So I think there's so many paths into getting what you want, but breaking it down into chunks so that you don't feel like it's impossible 
goes a long way in combating that imposter syndrome. I just came up with this silly scheme this week, but if I write, I told myself, I did the math like a good Asian. <laughs> and I was like, if I write 500 words a day for 200 days, I will have 100,000 words. And 200 days, let's say I write 20 days a month, which is pretty reasonable. That's when I have childcare. Um, I will be done in 10 months. And for some reason, that seems way less impossible than write 50,000 words, go. (laughs) Totally. And I'm like, I take this, like, break it down step by step into like various parts of my life. So I'm always the person who's saying like, write an outline, write a to-do list, tackle the things you can tackle so that the next step becomes a little easier. We've implemented outlines into the Mochi workflow and it's great. Yeah. I (laughs) I love it. And like, even I think, in my job where I'm working with professional writers all day long, we still use outlines because I want to make sure that I'm not wasting anyone's time, that we're both Mm -hmm. expecting the same end result, and that we can always go back to the outline and say like, here's why the final product didn't really line up to what I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, do you have any advice for Asian Americans who want to pursue journalism and writing like you did? It's tough because I have to say that like I do in like normal times, a lot of like talking to college students and, and others who want to get into the field. And I think the hardest thing for me to get past is that is this is a really tough world. Like I Mm. have personally been through rounds of layoffs. I have seen friends and colleagues lose their jobs. I have seen my favorite publications fold. We are currently in a time where advertising is very, very, very scarce. And you can see it when you pick up, you know, a newspaper or a magazine, like how thin the issues are these days. And so it is just an incredibly precarious industry that does not offer a lot of stability. So if that doesn't sound right for you, then I would say (laughs) that it does make the business, the business of journalism makes the love of journalism really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, obviously there are jobs out there. I've, I currently have a job that I'm thrilled to have. And I think it's about figuring out like what it is that you want to do and what it is about journalism that's appealing to you. So whether that means you love to cover local news or you, you know, think you have a fantastic audio background and would love to do broadcast or radio, or whether you like to put together photos with words, with snappy headlines, you know, there's so much nuance in the journalism industry that figuring out which part of it you love, I think is key to that first job. And we're also in a in a time where like journalism is so, so much more than what I studied in college when it was literally broken down between like your tracks were the print track and the broadcast track. And that's like so limiting. Now we have data journalism for when you're really good at like understanding data, breaking it down into graphics. Um, We have graphics journalism. We have social media as a job that did not exist when I was in college. Um, We have people who like create newsletters full time. So there's so many elements of it that are just as exciting that we did not know could be full-time jobs when I was in college. So 
think about the ask that you love and have that ready for when people ask you why you want to be in journalism, because that will come up over and over again, frankly, as a way to, as a coded way to ask, like, can you handle the fact that we don't know where this industry is going? Hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Steph, for your time and for our friendship. Um, where can people find you and keep up with what you're doing? So you can find me at by Steph Wu. That's B-Y-S-T-E-P-H-W-U on both Twitter and Instagram. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for listening to Chief Executive Ante. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe with your favorite podcast player and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out about the show and provides the external motivation I need to keep going. You can find show notes, links, and other resources at chiefexecutiveante.com. That's chiefexecutiveauntie.com. Special thanks to Sue Ann Shaw for mixing and mastering this episode, composing the music, and generally being a good human. Alyssa De La Rosa for creating the branding and my distribution partner, Mochi Magazine. See you next time. Thank you.